Hey, witches. Welcome to The Lion, The Witch, and The Podcast. We are two mystic Leos discussing spirituality and human condition in the post-pandemic world. So hop in, witches, for going hexing. Spooky he's... Spooky he's in. Spooky he's in. (laughs) Spooky he is in. (laughs) Spooky he is in. Season is here. Hello. Oh my Welcome God, to man. spooky season. Can you believe it? I mean, it happens every year, but I still can't believe it. <laughs> I know, but like, it's finally like our time to like fucking fly and run around with pumpkins on our heads <laughs> and like, just like be mummies and just walk around and, and, and I don't know, just act like nuts jobs that we already are. <laughs> The one thing I have to say to that is what a time to be alive. (laughs) What a time to be alive. Courtney and I have been joking about that using that term, just like whenever something crazy happens, what a time to be alive. What a time to be alive in a good way, in a good way, because also it's fucking Libra season. Like, thank God. Thank God. I'm so happy to be in my moon season. I I love it. No. This is good. This is good shit. And I feel like, because can you tell I'm in a singing mood? Okay. Yeah. I'm kind of in a singing mood. No, I'm only saying this because like our topic for today's episode, it ha- there is a song to it. Oh, so, yeah. I see where you're going with I'm this. Just thinking, I was just thinking about that. That's yeah. like, should we? I think, yeah. Do you, you, start do you want? No. Oh, you want to start? Okay. I was going to say, I'll, okay. Do you know, <laughs> do you know like the rest of it? Because I only know like, Let's look up the lyrics. Okay. <laughs> All right, ready? Yeah, okay. So. I was working in the lab late one night when my eyes beheld an eerie sight from the monster from a slab began to rise. And suddenly, to my surprise, the monster mesh. <laughs> Guys, you know what we're talking about today. We right? tried our best. We tried yeah. our best. Yeah, we're talking about fucking monsters. We're talking about graveyard smashing, monster mashing. We're talking about monsters, scary, spooky monsters, ah, real monsters. And cute and cuddly, spooky, scary monsters, because some of them you want to like cuddle, but you can't because I mean, you guys, I guess you could. Yeah. So like folklore or real, like true. who the hell knows? There are stories on either side. Like what is your favorite Halloween monster? Guess. Hmm. Would he be the pumpkin king by chance? He 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 he. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Honestly, though, like anything in that movie, like I fucking love them. I will say, I do love the two little kids. If you're, we're talking about Night Before Christmas. The two mm. little, ki- the two little, um, the little zombies, or one of them's a zombie. One of them's like half bat, half something. I forgot their names. In this town, yes. we call home. Everyone, hail to the pumpkin song. song. No, no, yeah. no, no. Yeah, that's exactly. Yeah. It. Yes, those are yes, 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 yes. <laughs> what are your favorites? Well, I love a good vampire. Oh, I have yeah. always been like I like you have a bone for a bone, daddy. I have just loved a fang daddy like all my life. I was always like a huge fan of the vampire Lestat. Um, I love also interview the vampire. I love like Brad Pitt as Louie. Oh my lord, like oh, 
so good. Um, I do love, I do love a vamp. I have to say like Dracula, my guy. Can I just say the fact that you said Fang Daddy is just chef's kiss? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I love a Fang Daddy. Since we're talking about vampires, should we just get into the resources? <laughs> Let's pop in. So today we are talking about The Bloody Truth About Vampires by Becky Little of National Geographic. Vampire History and Werewolf Legends from History.com, The Origins and History of Fairies by Ellen Casselo of HistoricUK.com. We're talking about New World Witchery, We Love It by Corey Thomas Hutchison, and I love this title, Zoinks, Tracing the History of Zombie from Haiti to the CDC by Lakshmi Gandhi of NPR. It reminds me of Scooby-Doo when he says, Zoinks! Zoinks. <laughs> So, so good. Okay, we're we're stoked. Let's just get into this episode because we're fucking ready. We're fucking ready. So let's talk about Fang Daddies, vampires. Mm -hmm. Our quintessential understanding of a vampire is a mythological undead humanoid creature that roams the world by night, drinking the blood of humans to stay alive. In most cases, they are formerly humans themselves, sucked dry by another, sometimes older vampire. Sometimes vampires can't see themselves in mirrors or can't stand Italian seasoning. Sometimes they can't stand cross-moving water. Sometimes they even sparkle. But the mythology of the vampire has evolved so incredibly much over time. Vampires didn't start out so clearly defined, says Becky Little of National Geographic. Scholars suspect that the modern conception of these Halloween monsters evolved from various traditional beliefs that were held throughout Europe and much of the evolution surrounding plague diseases. This belief centered around the fear that the dead, once buried, could still harm the living. (laughs) Becky Little says that often these legends arose from a misunderstanding of how bodies decompose. As a corpse's skin shrinks, its teeth and fingernails can appear to have grown longer. And as internal organs break down, a dark purge fluid can leak out of the nose and mouth. People unfamiliar with this process would interpret this fluid to be blood and suspect that the corpse had been drinking it from the living. Bloody corpses weren't the only cause for suspicion. Before people understood how certain diseases spread, they sometimes imagined vampires were behind the unseen forces slowly ravaging their communities. The one constant in the evolution of the vampire legend has been its close association with disease, writes Mark Collins Jenkins in his book, Vampire Forensics. Trying to kill vampires or prevent them from feeding was a way for people to feel as though they had some control over disease. Because of this, vampire scares tended to coincide with outbreaks of the plague. In 2006, archaeologists unearthed a 16th century skull in Venice, Italy, that had been buried among plague victims with a brick in its mouth. The brick was likely a burial tactic to prevent striga, Italian vampires or witches, from leaving the grave to eat people. It wasn't uncommon for anyone with an unfamiliar physical or emotional illness to be labeled a vampire. Many researchers have pointed to porphyria, a blood disorder that can cause severe blisters on skin that's exposed to sunlight, as a disease that may have been linked to the vampire legend. Beyond the misunderstanding of decomposition and disease, belief in vampires stemmed from both folklore and bloody antiquity. 
History.com says that it's widely thought the Bram Stoker named his fictional vampire Count Dracula after Vlad Dracul, also known as Vlad the Impaler. Vlad Dracul was born in Transylvania, Romania. He ruled Wachalia, Romania, off and on from 1456 to 1462. Some historians describe him as a just yet brutally cruel ruler who valiantly fought off the Ottoman Empire. He earned his nickname because his favorite way to kill his enemies was to impale them on a wooden stake. According to legend, Vlad Dracul enjoyed dining amidst his dying victims and dipping his bread in their blood. Whether those gory tales are true is unknown. Many people believe these stories sparked Stoker's imagination to create Count Dracula, who was also from Transylvania, sucked his victim's blood, and could be killed by driving a stake through his heart. But according to Dracula expert Elizabeth Miller, Stoker didn't base Count Dracula's life on Vlad Dracul. Nonetheless, the similarities between the two are quite intriguing. In northern Germany, the Nachzierer, or after-devourers, stayed in the ground, chewing their burial shrouds. Again, this belief likely has to do with the purge fluid, which could cause the shroud to sag or tear, creating the illusion that the corpse had been chewing it. These stationary masticators were thought to still cause trouble above ground and were also believed to be most active during outbreaks of the plague. In the 1679 tact on chewing the dead, a Protestant theologian accused the Naxirer of harming their surviving family members through occult processes. He wrote that people could stop them by exhuming the body and stuffing its mouth with soil and maybe a stone and coin for good measure. Without the ability to chew, the corpse would die of starvation. One of the last big vampire scares occurred in 19th century New England, two centuries after the infamous Salem witch trials. In 1892, 19-year-old Mercy Brown of Exeter, Rhode Island, died of tuberculosis, then known as consumption. Her mother and sister were already dead, and her brother Edwin was sick. Concerned neighbors worried that one of the recently deceased Brown women might be harming Edwin from the grave. When they opened Mercy Brown's grave, they found blood in her mouth and her heart and took this to be a sign of vampirism, though they didn't call it that. The neighbors burned Mercy's heart and mixed the ashes into a potion for Edwin to drink, a common anti-vampire tactic. The potion was meant to heal him. Instead, he died a few months later. This wasn't an isolated incident. Folklorist and author Michael Bell estimates that there are 60 known examples of anti-vampire rituals in 18th and 19th century New England, and several others elsewhere in the country. These rituals were most common in eastern Connecticut and western Rhode Island, says Brian Carroll, a history professor at Central Washington University. Carol believes these anti-vampire rituals were introduced as a medical procedure at the time of the American Revolution by German doctors who worked for the Hessian forces. Because of this, he thinks the New England vampires were based on the German Nachzierer. Unlike blood-sucking Romanian vampires, New England vampires stayed in their grave, harming the living through sympathetic magic from afar, he argues. Vampire panics died down in the 20th century as these fictional monsters replaced folk beliefs and as medical knowledge improved. 
However, there was a strange resurgence in the late 1960s when Sean Manchester, the president of the British Occult Society, said that a vampire was causing people to see strange things in London's Highgate Cemetery. So weird. So cool. I love vampires. Yeah. Who's your favorite fictional vampire? Um, fuck, dude. I don't know. It's definitely not Edwin Cullen. Sorry. Edwin Edward. Cullen. Edwin Cullen. <laughs> this is a skin of a killer, Bella. <laughs> well, certainly not that, as we know. Edwin Whoever that Edward. is. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I don't really have one, honestly. How about you? I, it's so hard because like, you know, for the longest time I watched the Vampire Diaries and like that was a fucking saga. And oh, like, yeah. you know, you were team Stefan Salvatore or Damon Salvatore. Correct. And like for years I was like, oh, Stefan's cool. He's like a reasonable fellow. Like, you know, he's actually like a nice human being. Wrong. Red flag. He was red flag from the beginning. I go back and I rewatched it and I was like, okay, I'm, I'm all for Damon because he's like honest and out there and like, you know, a, a merciless, brutal killer as well. But like, at least he's honest. Yeah, that's very true. <laughs> that's a good yeah. point. But I think I have to say, I do love Brad Pitt with fangs. True oh. fang daddy right there. Fang daddy. Oh, all right. Next section is werewolves because you can't have one without the other. Ow. Yeah. Another nightmarish monster of lore. Werewolves are, according to some legends in history.com, people who morph into vicious, powerful wolves. Others are a mutant combination of human and wolf, but all are bloodthirsty beasts who cannot control their lust for killing people and animals. It's unclear exactly when and where the werewolf legend originated. Some scholars believe the werewolf made its debut in the Epic of Gilgamesh, what we talked about last time, the oldest known Western prose, when Gilgamesh jilted a potential lover because she had turned her previous mate into a wolf. Spooky! Sounds like witchcraft! Werewolves made another early appearance in Greek mythology with the legend of Lycaon. According to the legend, Lycaon, the son of Pegasus, angered the god Zeus when he served him a meal made from the remains of a sacrifice boy. I mean, I think that's reasonable. I would also be angry. Mm-hmm. As punishment, the enraged Zeus turned Achaeon and his sons into wolves. Werewolves also emerged in early Nordic folklore. The saga of the Volsungs tells the story of a father and son who discovered wolf pelts that had the power to turn people into wolves for 10 days. The father-son duo donned the pelts, transformed into wolves, and went on a killing rampage in the forest. The rampage ended when the father attacked his son, causing a lethal wound, but the son was healed thanks to a raven with a magical healing leaf. Very helpful. Thank you, raven. Many so-called werewolves from centuries ago were in fact serial killers, and France had its fair share. In 1521, Frenchman Pierre Burgot and Michel Verdun allegedly swore allegiance to the devil and claimed to have an ointment that turned themselves into wolves. After confessing to brutally murdering several children, they were both burned to death at the state. Burning was thought to be one of the few ways to kill a werewolf. Giles Garnier, known as the Werewolf of Dole, was another 16th century Frenchman whose claim to fame was also an ointment with wolf-morphing abilities. 
According to legend, as a wolf, he viciously killed children and ate them. He too was burned to death at the stake for his monstrous crimes. Peter Stubb, a wealthy 15th century farmer in Bedburg, Germany, may be the most notorious werewolf of them all. According to folklore, he turned into a wolf-like creature at night and devoured many citizens of Bedburg. Peter was eventually blamed for the gruesome killings after being cornered by hunters who claimed they saw him shapeshift from wolf to human form. He experienced a grisly execution after confessing under torture to savagely killing animals, men, women, and children, and eating their remains. He also declared he owned an enchanted belt that gave him the power to transform into a wolf at will. Not surprisingly, the belt was never found. Some legends maintain werewolves shapeshifted at will due to a curse. Others state they transform with the help of an enchanted sash or cloak made of a wolf pelt, or as you heard, a belt. Still others claim people became wolves after being snatched or bit by a werewolf. In many werewolf stories, a person only turns into a wolf when there's a full moon, and that theory may not be far-fetched. According to a study conducted at Australia's Calvary Mater Newcastle Hospital, a full moon brings out the beast in many humans. The study found that of the 91 violent acute behavior incidents at the hospital between August 2008 and July 2009, 23% happened during a full moon. Patients attacked staff and displayed wolf-like behavior such as biting, spitting, and scratching. Although many were under the influence of drugs and alcohol at the time, it's unclear why they became intensely violent when the moon was full. In 1725, Peter the Wild Boy was found wandering naked on all fours through a German forest. Many thought he was a werewolf or at least raised by wolves. Peter ate with his hands and couldn't speak. He was eventually adopted by the courts of King George I and King George II and lived out his days as their pet in England. Research has shown Peter likely had pitt Hopkins syndrome, a condition discovered in 1978 that causes lack of speech, seizures, distinct facial features, difficulty breathing, and intellectual challenges. Other medical conditions that may have occurred werewolf mania throughout history are lycanthropy, a rare psychological condition that causes people to believe they're changing into a wolf or another animal, food poisoning, hypertrichosis, a rare genetic disorder causing excessive hair growth, rabies, hallucination, possibly caused by hallucinogenic herbs. No, okay. What's your favorite werewolf? I was just going to ask you that, dog. Wow. All right. Who? Okay. So I'm not so sure it's going to be Bella. Where the hell have you been, Loka guy? Not him. No. Um, I'm going to go back. I don't know. What is my favorite werewolf? What's yours? I'm surprised you're not thinking about Harry Potty right now. Oh my God, Lupin. Yeah. You're so right. Lupin is my favorite werewolf. He's my I favorite also, too. I love Sirius Black and I love, love an Animagus. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I love Sirius Black, like probably my favorite because I mean, mm-hmm. that's my favorite movie too. Number three. Hands I know. Down. Yeah. Sirius Black is one of my absolute favorite Harry Potter characters of all time. And yeah. Not like I feel like I'm going to ruin it for anyone because this movie's been out for like 10 years, but like when he died, heartbroken, I was, I I was inconsolable. Like I almost 
went head first through that TV after Helen the Bottom Carter. I'm not going to lie. I'm getting, I'm getting heated. <laughs> I know. I can tell. I'm like, you good, bro? You good. <laughs> I'm fucking mad. You're yeah, okay. no, dude, you're so right. Lupin, uh, Mooney, my guy, like mm-hmm. best guy. All right. Now that we've gotten that past us, <laughs> let's talk about fucking fairies, dog. Most of us think of fairies as tiny creatures flitting about on gossamer wings, waving a magic wand, but history, folklore, and Ellen Castle tell a different tale. Fairies can be spooky. When belief in fairies was common, most people didn't like to mention them by name and so referred to them by other names, the little people or the hidden people. Many explanations have been given for a belief in fairies. Some say that they are like ghosts, spirits of the dead, or fallen angels, neither bad enough for hell nor good enough for heaven, if you believe in that. There are hundreds of different kinds of fairies. Some are minute creatures, others grotesque. Some can fly and all can appear and disappear at will. The oldest fairies on record in England were first described by the historian Gervais of Tilbury in the 13th century. Brownies and other hobgoblins are considered guardian fairies. They are useful and do housework and odd jobs around the house. In Aberdeenshire, Scotland, they are hideous to look at. They have no separate toes or fingers, and in the Scottish lowland, they have a hole instead of a nose. Banshees are less common and more sinister. They usually only appear to foretell a tragedy. In Highland tradition, the washer by the ford, a web-footed, one-nostrilled, buck-tooth hag, is only seen washing bloodstained clothes when men are about to meet a violent death. Goblins and bugaboos are always thought to be malignant. Most of the nature fairies are perhaps descendants of pre-Christian gods and goddesses or are the spirits of trees and streams. Black Annis, a blue-faced hag, haunts the Dane Hills in Leicestershire and Gentle Annie, who governs storms in the Scottish lowlands, are perhaps descended from the Celtic goddess Danu, mother of Ireland's cave fairies. Mermaids and mermen, river spirits, and spirits of pools are the most common nature fairies. Marsh gash makes the flickering flames that hover over marshy ground and gives rise to the belief in the will-o'-the-wisp, a highly dangerous fairy that haunts marshy ground, luring unwary travelers to their death in the bogs. Belief in fairies has not completely died out. As recently as 1962, a Somerset farmer's wife told how she had lost her way in the Berkshire Downs and was put on the right track by a small man in green who appeared suddenly at her elbow and then disappeared. A woman on holiday in Cornwall with her daughter came across a small green man with a pointed hood and ears. They were so alarmed they ran for the ferry, terrified. Yeah, I mean, people still obviously all over the place have a belief in fairies. I have a belief in fairies, absolutely. They are not spirits that I welcome into my own craft, into my own home. Um, You know, if you spend any time on witch talk or the internet, you'll know that you should always vet a spirit when you bring it into your, when you invite it into your craft, when you invite it into your home and your space, things like that. And there have been, you know, fairies have a reputation for causing havoc, you know, they're really cool and really interesting, but yeah, the belief in fairies is still very alive and well. Mm-hmm. So the next part, I'm going to give a little warning to people. Um, 
we're going to talk about cryptids and I absolutely love cryptids. I think they're fascinating and interesting. There are a lot of people and especially those people who live in areas like Appalachia, who, you know, have this obviously very strong belief in these creatures and they are very present in their everyday lives or their practices and things like that. You know, there, there are literal precautions that are taken to avoid cryptids every day. Um, a lot of what the Appalachians believe, at least in my area that I live in and in areas that I know, are you really shouldn't be saying their names. So for a lot of them, we did try to avoid the names of a lot of like popular, let's say indigenous um, cryptids, if you know where I'm going here, you know, um, so we're, we're going to try to avoid some of the, the names of these spirits that are not usually, people usually don't like to say their names and to quote, conjure them up. So there's your warning. If you want to skip past this part, if you're not comfortable hearing about cryptids, um, go ahead and skip past this part. But I think this part is super interesting. So I'm going to dive right in. The animal kingdom has a magic all its own, according to Corey Thomas Hutchison, but still we humans love to see mythical or quasi-mythical beasties around us. Medieval European unicorns, the guardian dragons of China, the fearsome Nandi bear of Kenya, the reluctant yeti of Nepal, and other strange creatures dot our local landscape and have become deeply entwined with local legends and cultures in many cases. In the late 20th and early 21st centuries, we begin referring to some of these creatures as cryptids, a diminutive nickname derived from the concept of cryptozoology, or the study of mysterious and unknown and frequently unverifiable animals. Not all of these creatures are mythical or fabulous. Take, for example, the okapi, which is a creature that seems like a mashup between a zebra and a deer, although it is actually more closely related to a giraffe. When it was first reported by local Central African tribes to Europeans in the 19th century, most colonial naturalists rolled it off as a legend. Then in the early 20th century, Europeans found the creature alive and well, although in small numbers and they moved from mythic beasts to zoological curiosity, although the African people knew the Okapi were real from the get-go. Similar tales could be told of the Kulakanthi a fish that was generally thought to be extinct until South African fishermen brought one up to shore in the 1930s. In folk magical practices, we often see that witches and other spellcasters become involved with local spirits and animals. That is also true of several cryptids in North America, and in some cases, these beasts can almost act as local deities, providing a link to magical lore or omens, portending doom to those who know how to read them. Two excellent examples are the Jersey Devil of Pine Barrens in New Jersey and the Mothman of Point Pleasant, West Virginia. The Jersey Devil has been talked about in local legends for more than two centuries and was even the subject of a story attributed to Napoleon Bonaparte's brother who hunted in the area. While the story of the Jersey Devil varies in the telling, many accounts trace its origins back to a woman named Mother Leeds. She is frequently described as a witch, and the Jersey Devil is her 13th child, cursed by her from birth, with a monstrous shape resembling something like a bat-built kangaroo hybrid. Some believe that this creature is simply a blue heron indigenous to the region, but which can look a lot like the Jersey Devil's descriptions from when molting, 
Others have suggested the Jersey Devil could be a great horned owl. Some practicing witches in the area have taken the Leeds Devil, another name for the beast as an icon with which to work. I love the Jersey Devil because I spent a lot of time in that area. And that's not the reason I love the Jersey Devil, but I think it's the story is super cool. I actually went to, I've gone to the Pine Barrens a lot because I used to live down in the Philadelphia area. Um, So whenever we would go down to the beach, we, you have to drive to the Pine Barrens essentially, if you don't want to take the highway. And let me tell you, it's fucking spooky because you have these like just miles and miles and miles of these like the sandy um, kind of ground and these creepy, like just bent over witchy looking trees, these pine trees that are really just there. They don't look like typical pine trees. They're all like kind of fucked up looking. Mm -hmm. So like you're driving through this really uncomfortable, weird area. And it's just like, there's no houses for miles. It is all these woods, these creepy, weird woods, quiet as fuck too. You know, it's a beautiful area and we've gone hiking in those areas before, but let me tell you, I don't know if I'd want to stay there at night. Yeah. I wouldn't blame you, but I have been to, I believe a cemetery that a lot of Leeds family members were buried in. And I did see a lot of Leeds um, gravestones. And I remember we did back behind the cemetery that we were at, we went on this, once again, sandy dirt road back a couple miles. And we think we found the area where the Leeds house was supposed to be. And you know what, just something did not feel right something did not feel right. And we actually like put the car in reverse and just drove backwards for like a mile. We were so like anxious to get out of there, but really interesting how the vibe is real down there. You can tell there's just something in those woods, you know, similar stories surround the Mothman who began appearing in West Virginia in the 1960s. The Mothman is often described as a large, dark figure with enormous wings and glowing red eyes who will follow drivers in their cars or swoop out of the sky near unsuspecting people. That's fun. Its home was thought to be an abandoned munitions dump, although it was seen in numerous places around Point Pleasant over a one-year period. Then, in December of 1967, the Silver Bridge collapsed in the Ohio River, killing nearly 50 people, and the Mothman sightings slowed and then ceased altogether. Many linked the two, thinking that perhaps Mothman was a harbinger of destruction. Mothman was also linked to UFO activity at the time. And alien encounters are sometimes a good proxy for the sorts of abductions and otherworldly experiences reported in fairy lore. An excellent example of localized lore reflecting magical experiences of otherworldly creatures comes in the form of lake monsters and water serpents. We have lore about krakens and sea serpents dating back centuries, even millennia. In North America, a number of lakes and rivers have localized water serpents associated with them, such as Chessie in the Chesapeake Bay, Champ in Lake Champlain between New York and Vermont, the Beasts of Busco in Churubusco, Indiana, which is actually an oversized snapping turtle, and the Ogopogo in Okanagan Lake in British Columbia, Manapogo in Lake Manitoba, Slimy Slim in Lake Payette, Idaho, and White River Monster in Newport, Arkansas. Many of these resemble stories of horned serpents found throughout indigenous American lore and maybe local manifestations of the beasts. 
Similar tales can be told about creatures like the wampus cat of the American Southeast and paralleled with stories of jaguar-like beasts in the Southwest and Mexico. Mexican duendes often resemble gnomes or goblins from European lore. Although they are distinct in many ways, multiple locations have lore about Sasquatches and ape men with localized incarnations attached to different legends. In the Mormon cultural region around Salt Lake City, for example, the Bigfoot legends get attributed to encounters with a dark, hairy wanderer who turns out to be the biblical Cain still walking the earth under an internal curse. Immortal but unable to rest. Many places have legends of phantom hitchhikers or ghostly gray ladies or ladies in white who seem to act as both memorials to past tragedies and guardians of a particular place. The Wailing La Llorona in Mexico and parts of the United States fills a similar role while also being a boogeyman to terrorize errant children. In the Ozarks and Appalachians, boogeyman is known as raw head and bloody bones, a sort of phantom while bore under the command of a local witch. In the Baltimore area, there is a similar story about the ghost of a headless hog who wanders through the streets at night. And speaking of headless, who could forget the iconic horseman that rides through the village of Sleepy Hollow? Looking into local lore for animals both concrete and wondrous opens up all sorts of possibilities for magic. What may seem like a silly legend could turn out to be the gateway to an entire vein of localized spiritual forces that are untapped or misunderstood. And speaking of misunderstood, last section of the doc, we're talking about zombies. While there's a long history and fascination with animated corpses in American literature and cinema, zombies aren't originally a product of the American imagination. The undead corpses actually trace their roots back to Haiti and Haitian Creole traditions that have their roots in African religious customs. According to Haitian folklore, the book Race, Oppression, and the Zombie recounts, zombies are products of spells by a sorcerer called the Pukar. The word is believed to be of West African origin and was brought to Haiti by slaves from that region. The concept of zombies would evolve further with the creation of the voodoo religion. Through the years, researchers and anthropologists have occasionally tried to research the Haitian belief in zombies. In 1937, the author Zora Nell Hurston traveled to Haiti to research Haitian customs for her book, Tell My Horse. In a 1943 interview, Hurston was asked to define exactly what a zombie was. Her reply, a zombie is supposed to be the living dead, people who die and are resurrected, but without souls. Early zombie movies nodded to the Haitian roots of the legends, but later moved away from it entirely. The landmark zombie movie 1968 classic Night of the Living Dead launched the zombie genre into becoming a vehicle for stinging social commentary. It is thought that George Romero casted Dwayne Jones as the protagonist to describe the fight for civil rights, a Black man being chased by a mob of soulless white people out of their minds. So much spooky in one doc. We love a spooky doc and we love a spooky app. Happy fucking spooky season, everyone. We really hope you enjoyed this episode because you're going to like all the rest of the episodes that are coming for spooky season because it's spooky season. Don't forget this Friday. We have our seance and Sanderson sisters oil popping off fucking flying. Also, we might have another surprise in the shop, too. So check it out. Friday, 11 a.m. PST, 2 p.m. 
EST. Sean, anything else? Drink your water, eat your brains, and drink up people's blood. Ooh, yeah. And howl at the moon. There you go. Have a great spooky season. We'll see you next week. 